Good morning. Today's reading is John 6, 52 through 53 and 60 through 71. Hear the word of the Lord. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Tom, and uh, Gabe, thank you so much. It's so great to be with the downtown campus uh, this morning, and uh, I want to bring you greetings from uh, the rest of our campuses across the city. So you're part of a wonderful family that uh, loves Jesus with their heart, mind, and hands. So again, so grateful to be with you, and uh, I also bring greetings very early this morning from my dog, Harley. Uh, Liz and I have a big golden doodle, about 100 pounds, uh, that uh, we tow it on every day. So again, good morning, everybody. Well, our city has uh, had some amazing news this week, don't you think? I mean, imagine uh, getting the World Cup. This is incredible. And uh, as sports fans, and Liz and I are really big sports fans, and we've been in this city almost 35 years, okay? So we've had some big moments. Maybe you remember them. 2014 and 15 were as good as it gets when the Royals, right, won the World Series and this entire city turned blue. Remember that? That was amazing. Well, then on the heels of that, I mean, this is Kansas City, you guys. This is every year, right? It's like we've had the Chiefs and the whole town got, got red for the Chiefs, right, when they won the Super Bowl. Now, I want to make a confession to each one of you. Uh, I do that periodically. I mean, it's not real serious, but it's real, okay? Um, when it comes to the Royals or the Chiefs or, well, other, you know, teams that I support, I'm sort of, at times, a fair-weather fan. Anybody here like that? I mean, I have to tell you that I, I love going out to the Royals games. Uh, it's one of my favorite things I love doing in the summer, but I tell you, we've only been there once. And, you know, I think we were almost there alone, okay? So I love, I love the Royals, but it's kind of a hard year to be a Royals fan, Right? So I don't know about you if you're a Fairweather fan. Anybody here like that? Um, my passions and loyalties get really ramped when they're really good, but I sort of lose interest and drift. 
right? An- anybody like that? You're still kind of like, yeah, yeah, most of us are like that. Well, being a Fairweather fan uh, in sports is one thing, but in the arena of faith, it's quite another. When the road of discipleship gets tough, and it will, the question for us this morning is, will we be a Fairweather fan of Jesus, or will we be a follower of Jesus? This morning in our text, we are going to see something very important that all of us need to wrestle with wherever we are in our spiritual journey. And that is, Jesus is not looking for fans, but he is looking for followers. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the New Testament book of the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 6. Now our family across the city is exploring together this year this remarkable gospel called the Gospel of John. And in this section, uh, we have a theme called signs because the literary arrangement of John is built around these signs. I want you to keep in mind uh, something that maybe you're aware of, depending on your background, depending on your understanding of literature. But the book we are opening, okay, this writing, is one of the greatest masterpieces ever of human history. In fact, it's translated in more languages in the world and read by more humans than any other book, bar none, okay? So however you understand the Bible, okay, and I hope you have the highest respect for it, we are entering a literary masterpiece of the highest level, okay? So let's just remember that as we enter this text. I'd like to set the context for us. Again, if you're newer today or you're visiting or you've been a part of our series, let's understand where we are in John's brilliant gospel. John has been describing the rise of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, this moment in First Galilean uh, life in first, uh, the first century is Jesus' popularity is meteoric. This is rock star Jesus. And the energy around Jesus of Nazareth is in the Galilean air. It's palpable. Now, we have found a moment last week, if you're with us, at the first part of John 6. I mean, <laughs> this had to be one of Jesus, apart from his resurrection's all-star miracles. I mean, Jesus takes this little boy's lunch box, amazing little kid that gave it up for the whole crew, and he feeds 20,000 people. Can you imagine? So our text comes right on the heel of that, and there are enthusiastic fans of Jesus coming out of the woodwork. This is where we are in our entry to the text, but all of a sudden there's a twist, a sort of chalkboard dissonance, because unlike the populace, the religious aristocracy is not that excited about Jesus. This is major pushback time for them. And for good reason, if you're a religious elite, because Jesus' staggering identity claims are off the charts. His stunning miracles are shocking. His authoritative words are unheard of. And particularly as we come into this text, he has just given us this metaphorical language, imagine, of him being the bread coming down from heaven, that we are to eat his flesh and blood. Now, this is metaphorical, but this is pushing the religious elite over the edge. Okay? What really surprises, though, what takes us by surprise is not the religious elites pushback, but the populace pushback. Because now the literary lens and spotlight is going to shift from the religious aristocracy to other followers of Jesus, and now they are having a major pushback. Okay, this is where we are. So here in verses 60 through 71, we are going to discover that in the journey of authentic discipleship, With Jesus, we can expect two big challenges. 
First, at some point in following Jesus, wherever you are, and I can confirm this in my years of following Jesus, Jesus first will offend you. And secondly, you are going to want to walk away at some point, okay? So this is where we want to go in the arrangement of our conversation this morning. And then we're going to get to a watershed question that is the most important question perhaps ever asked in the Bible. First, Jesus will offend you. Look at verses 60 through 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this and said to them, do you take offense at this? Now this phrase in the original language, a hard saying, who can listen to it, first of all, is not someone's cognitive ability to comprehend the words. The idea here is a strong dislike of the implications of the words, okay? Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his brilliant paraphrase, The Message, captures so well this verse. He says, many among his disciples heard this and said, this is tough teaching, too tough to swallow, okay? But not only was Jesus' words hard to swallow, Jesus intimates here that his listeners are feeling deeply offended. Now, the word in the original language that is translated offended has an English uh, derivative. It is the sense of offense. You see that here? And actually, the word in Greek builds to the English word scandalize. Okay. So even in English across language, we kind of go, what? Scandalous is really intense and negative, emotive word. And so Jesus is saying the f- his followers are not just annoyed. They're not just irritated. They are angry, upset, and perhaps on the verge of being livid. Okay? And I think it's fair to say that for all of us, right, hard truths go against the very grain of our preferences, our biases, our prejudices, our desires, our comforts. And the challenge of heart idols we all wrestle with can be very upsetting when they're pressed into. Hearing hard truths may be very difficult for all of us, but they are often in love necessary. And Jesus grasped this. And notice, as we enter these texts, that Jesus never hides the cost of discipleship. Never. Nor does he soft sell it. Nor does he blur the rugged path to the cross to get more people to follow him. Because Jesus, amen, Jesus is not growing a fan club. He's not about popularity. He's forming a discipleship community that will spend eternity with him. So if you've read the four Gospels of the New Testament, You know Jesus says a lot of hard stuff, right? He says things like, love your enemies. (laughs) Wow. Do good to those who hate you. And in one of his most seminal texts on discipleship, he says this, right? Many of you heard this. If anyone would come after me, right? If anyone would follow me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then he says this. Talk about scandalous. Scandalizo. For whoever would save his life will, not may, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and one text says my kingdom's sake, will find it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes of the faith. And if you've read any about his life or his works, I recommend everything he has written. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for his faith. 
And before that, he wrote several books. One is called, which I think is the most classic book of Christian discipleship ever written apart from the Bible. So I don't know if you know it sounds a little hyperbolic, but I believe that. Okay, so that's a little over the edge for me, for Tom, but, but it's very close, if not the most. Okay, can I just say that? It's called The Cost of Discipleship, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets to the heart of the matter, what Jesus is saying here. And he says, when Christ bids a person, when he calls someone, he bids them come and die. Now, Bonhoeffer is not primarily saying that martyrdom awaits all discipleships, although <laughs> the suffering church around the world is facing this every day in unprecedented ways. So it is possible. But rather, he is speaking of perhaps an even harder moment, and that is your and my daily commitment to obedience, submission to him, and self-sacrifice for the world. So if you decide to become a follower of Jesus, you can be assured it is going to be the most amazing life of joyful intimacy with Jesus. But it can also, and you can be confident in your journey, it will prove costly and difficult for your life. And Jesus says, count the cost. Right? You will be asked to give up some things you hold dear. I, I almost guarantee that. You may be rejected by others, not hopefully for being a jerk, <laughs> or me being a jerk, or be unloving, but because of what you believe and your loyalty to Jesus. I love uh, the story of uh, Jim Elliott. He was a Wheaton student that was a missionary who gave his life for the Aka Indians. They, they killed him, bringing the gospel to him. And in college, as a wrestler, which I was a wrestler, he said this. Uh, he wrote it in his journal. He is, no fool to give up what he, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the cost of discipleship. Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine, friends. He died on a Roman cross for an atonement for your sin. He knows and wants what's best for you. He has the best possible life imaginable for you. He longs to know you, to be known by you. He delights in you, but he will challenge you. He will surprise you. He will call you out of your comfort zone. And he will at times call you to sacrifice, and at times he will shock you. So let me ask you, as I've asked myself this week, where is Jesus challenging you right now? Where is following Jesus challenging you? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure about the Christian faith or about Jesus. And again, I'm delighted you are here. We are all searching in many ways. And maybe you are struggling with troubling doubts. And Jesus is wooing your heart. And he wants you to simply be open to learn more about him and to respond to his loving embrace. And perhaps Jesus is challenging you in regard to loving someone in your life that is so unlovable. Or he's prompting you to forgive and seek reconciliation with someone who has hurt or wounded you in some way. Or maybe he is challenging you to embrace his design and desire for sexual purity. Or maybe he's challenging you about his design and desire for stewarding your money and wealth in light of kingdom priorities and expressing greater love and generosity or care for the poor. See, discipleship with Jesus, I don't know how better to say it, is not a part-time gig. 
It's an all-of-life, all-in deal. Discipleship is not just about Sundays, as important as the gathered church is and the joy of being together. It is primarily where we spend the majority of our time, where God calls us to be salt and light, to be his followers in our Monday worlds where we live, work, and play. Discipleship informs and influences every relationship we have. And it shapes and impacts every area of our lives as we are called to live together in spiritual community before him. So let me say first, at some point, Jesus will offend you, just like he offended the first century followers. But notice, secondly, we see in this text that at some point in your life, you're going to want to deeply walk away from him. Look at verses 66 and 67, perhaps some of the most shocking texts of John. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, his inner circle, do you want to go away as well? Now I want you to notice something or listen carefully. This is stunning. If you've read the New Testament text, notice many of Jesus' disciples turned their back on him and no longer walked with him. Let that sink in for a moment, would you? It's not some. I would think it'd be some. The text says many. That, that just blows me away. Doesn't that shock you? Every time I read it, it shocks me. Jesus, after all, the creator of the universe, <laughs> most brilliant being ever to grace this planet, the most this, uh, completely sinless, I mean, He's standing right before them in flesh and blood. He's indwelling time and space, the one who created it. He's done all these amazing miracles right in front of their dazzled eyes. They witnessed him firsthand. They heard his intellectual brilliance, unimaginable wisdom. They witnessed firsthand this. They saw Jesus up close and personal, like you and I will not see him until we see him face to face in heaven. And still, you still with me? A whole bunch of people turned their backs on him and walked away. Not in indifference, but in bold rejection and wrong belief. I have to say, one of the deepest heartaches in my life, I've lived a few years, as you can tell, um, with my gray hair. But one of my greatest heartaches is that over the years, there have been several people that I have known well and deeply loved, who've walked away from Jesus. I mean, the kind of hip word today is they deconstructed their faith. Once they had a great enthusiasm for Jesus, and they decided not to walk with him anymore. And maybe you have had or presently having that experience with someone. Maybe a family member, close friend, maybe even a spouse. And it is intensely painful for the follower of Jesus. But at one level, this text reminds us it should not shock us. Because when we remember that Jesus himself, <laughs> I mean, had many who walked away from him. Yes, continue to love those that walk away. Pray for them that they will find their way back to Jesus' loving, forgiving arms. But don't let their abandonment of Jesus shake your faith to the core. 
observing the many who are leaving him, let's go back into the story. John tells us, Jesus does something in verse 67 that is a shock and awe moment. Jesus looks at the 12, his inner circle, that have been traveling with him night and day, that have left everything to follow him, his most committed followers, and he says to them this question, do you want to go away as well? Now, in the original language, John pens this question in a grammatical way that sort of suggests that Jesus expects an enthusiastic negative answer. One New Testament scholar says, this is probably best translated, surely you do not want to go away, do you? And perhaps even more shocking is that a couple verses later, you heard it read so beautifully this morning, Jesus will drop a massive bombshell, a prophetic bombshell. And he says, there are some of you who are going to just walk away. You're going to do the unthinkable. You're going to betray me. And it's a reminder to even the most committed to Jesus at times will eventually walk away from him. I came to faith in Jesus as a young boy. But let me just be transparent. Can you have had the joy of walking with him for a long time? I've had moments in my discipleship journey when I came this close to walking away from him. One of the earliest times, and I've had a handful of times, was coming to grips with losing my dad to death when I was young. And processing all the implications to my family and our vulnerability. And I kept wrestling, maybe you have too, like how could an all-loving God who's all-powerful allow this to happen in my life? And even as a pastor, I hope you don't want to get up and leave now, there have been a few times, a handful of times, I wanted to quit being a pastor. But not only that, I've had at least two times in my life, existential times where I wanted to throw in my faith. Throw the towel in. And it especially occurred when I've been deeply hurt by other Christians. Where there's discouragement, disappointment, and disillusionment, they can shake anyone's faith to the core. When I worked with a campus parachurch organization many years ago, I'll never, I'll never forget this moment. You know, there are certain moments that just stand out. We were at this large huge ballroom in Chicago at a Christian conference for college students. And the enthusiasm and energy for Jesus was like off the top. Everyone was fired up for Jesus. And then the speaker who was giving the talk that night spoke on discipleship. And the speaker said something I'll never forget. He looked around this packed ballroom of enthusiastic college students and he said this in 10 years half of you will not follow Jesus anymore I'm telling you it was like a bomb went off I mean there was pin drop silence and I remember thinking as a younger person like that's crazy but now that I'm older I'm more sad about it than ever but I think he was onto something. His words ring greater to me than ever before. And when I've observed faith, again, now that I'm a little older, in many seasons of life, I can see more and more that the season of our life, and in each season, 
there are different strong temptations to walk away from Jesus. When we are young, often it is the demands, the moral demands of sexual purity that discipleship with Jesus requires that we are not willing to embrace. When we are older, and that still could be the same case, I'm not minimizing that, but often it is our call and commitment to be increasingly generous with financial stewardship or a midlife identity crisis or the growing disillusioning shattered dreams of what we thought our life would be and the Thoreauian quiet desperation that haunts our soul. Whatever season we are in, the point is, and Jesus intimates this, that the attrition rate of discipleship is really high. Eugene Peterson is uh, another person that um, is an incredible gift to the church, and uh, he's now with the Lord. But in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which actually pulls this phrase from Nietzsche, who was not at all a Christian, but Nietzsche was on to something. Eugene Peterson gives us the needed perspective. Listen to his words. He says, millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ or make a decision for Christ. But there is a dreadful attrition rate. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christian call, Christians called holiness. So let me ask you, okay, as I ask myself in my own contemplation or reflection, certainly this week, is what makes you want to walk away from Jesus? What makes you want to throw in the towel of faith? Is it how other Christians have treated you or treated you or a wounded church experience or a Christian leader's scandal? Is there a gnawing disappointment with God over your own dreams? Unfulfilled longings? Temptations you just can't seem to overcome? Oozing woundedness from the past? Or one of the ones in my pastoral confidence that I hear most often with people who walk away is I prayed and prayed and prayed and God did not answer my prayer. Are there unanswered prayers that make you want to walk away? Is there a root of bitterness against injustice or some real thing in your life that's suffocating your faith? See, many of our challenges to walk away from Jesus are not driven by intellectual doubts or barriers. They are there. I'm going to address that in a moment. But often, more often in my experience personally and as a pastor for many years is the emotional and relational ones. Maybe you're here this morning and you're ready to throw in the towel on Jesus. Your faith is hanging on a thin thread. I want to encourage you first to reach out to a close Christian friend or staff here at the downtown campus and transparently share your story, your real struggle of faith. That's okay. You're safe here. Isolation is not the path forward for discipleship. Discipleship at times does feel lonely, but it is never meant to be a solitary enterprise. We need each other. 
to find wholeness, healing, and a more vibrant faith, we need to know and be known by others. Now, we know this not only from the ancient biblical text, but we're learning this more and more through the brilliance of men like Kurt Thompson and Dan Siegel through interpersonal neurobiology. Dan Siegel captures this. And he reminds all of us as humans to be whole and full. We need four S's in our life. We need to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. Friends, that is the design of the local church, to be that kind of family and that kind of community. And that's our heart at Christ Community. We need to tell our stories to others without condemnation, but with honesty and empathy. We need to empathetically listen to one another's stories. We need our local church family more than ever before. And when the road of discipleship with Jesus gets difficult, and I'll tell you it will, if it hasn't been for you already, will others be there for us? And will we be there for others? When discipleship really gets hard, will we bow out or will we bow down? Many who spent time with Jesus in the first century walked away, and the question for us in this text is, what about you and me? Will we walk away or keep following Jesus? Are we Jesus fans or Jesus followers? These are the two big challenges, right? But I want you to see in this text probably one of the most important questions that are, it's ever stated in the biblical text, in my opinion. It is the watershed question of faith. It is the bottom line of faith. And if it is not following Jesus, where will you go? Where will you go? Look at verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, <coughs> Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, if you've read much of the Gospels, you know Peter. I love Peter. Will you relate to Peter? Peter wears his emotion on his sleeves. He says what everybody else is thinking, but nobody else will say. He gets a bad rap. Peter's response here is incredibly brilliant. Peter gets to the bottom line of authentic Christian faith. Basically, Peter responds to Jesus' question by saying to Jesus, what alternatives are there? Aaliyah, thank you for your song this morning. Because that's the piece. There is nothing better than that. What alternatives do we have to life's deepest questions and your heart's deepest longings. There are none. There is none like Jesus. And Peter understands this. Jesus, he says, you stand head and shoulders above everyone else. Every religion or philosophy of life, you are unsurpassable. Now, at first glance, some of you may be thinking, Jesus' response, or, or Peter's response to Jesus, seems to be kind of faith by default. Please hear me. We need to grasp when anchored in truth, faith by default is never a faulty faith. It is actually the most integral and authentic faith that has thoughtfully considered all the alternatives and found them woeful and wanting. It is faith not of absolute philosophical certainty because none of us have an infinite vantage point. But it is one of humble confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the abundant life he offers us. It is unsurpassable. 
It is a faith that is not only comfortable wrestling with doubt, but it is a faith that is willing and honest to doubt one's doubts about faith. One of those great people of history that I've admired and read a great deal about was 17th century philosopher and physicist, the Frenchman Blaise Pascal. Like Peter, Pascal thinks deeply about his faith and he comes to the end in what is known throughout philosophers and history as Pascal's wager. Maybe you have thought deeply about it, but it's brilliant. It is what Peter is saying. Pascal makes the case that the person will either choose to believe or she will not. And there are only two possibilities. As for the way things are, either the God whom Christians worship exists or that God does not. There are only two possibilities. Jesus is who he says he is or he's not. And Pascal thought by reason itself he could not help you decide which path to follow. Reason points us there, but it doesn't get us there. Faith gets us there. And in light of this, he said there are two choices. And Pascal says, how are you going to wager your life and your eternal destiny? Here's his wager. Maybe you understand it first. Four pieces. If God really exists and we believe, we have an infinite gain, which is heaven and eternal life with God in the new heavens and earth. Right? The infinite gain. If God really exists and we don't believe that, we have the most infinite loss imaginable, which the Bible describes as hell or separation from God forever. That's what the Bible teaches. Also, number three, if God really does not exist, if God does not exist, if, if this is just a crutch, if this is just an imaginary dream, if this is just a way to get through life, an opiate of the masses, right? And we believe that God exists, even though he doesn't, we essentially lose nothing. If God really does not exist, and we believe that God doesn't exist, we essentially gain nothing. And Pascal's point, like Peter, is where do we go? There's, you're the best option by far, because you're unsurpassable. From all the evidence in Scripture and his own personal conversion to Christ, which he kept in a little piece of paper they found at his death in his pocket, when Jesus revealed himself to him. It's an incredible story. Pascal comes to faith's bottom line, and he meets Jesus right there. Once a skeptic, like the Apostle Paul, Pascal grasped the transforming truth for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Sheldon Van Aken, in his brilliant book, A Severe Mercy, he was a friend of C.S. Lewis, he was deeply committed to be a skeptic an unbeliever, and he writes about his journey and faith in Jesus. Listen to this, maybe read it carefully with me. The position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or reject him. My God, he says, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap of rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God there was no certainty that he was not. We live in a cultural moment where skepticism about any objective truth that can be known is off the charts. And trust has been so badly frayed 
by people, institutions of every kind, and we don't trust anyone. And we struggle to believe there's any objective truth. We struggle to trust anyone, don't we? That's our cultural moment. I get that. But how do we respond? The wise response is not to fall in the morass of a complete nihilism or skepticism or to abandon all trust or hope, but to come to that moment where Peter came in faith's true bottom line. Lord Jesus, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. This past week, Peter's words have been a very dear companion to my heart. I'm not going to tell you what's going on. One of my brothers, who was in perfect health, unexpectedly died. And as you can imagine, our family is stunned and heartbroken, and we thought we had so much more time with him. And if you've lost someone close to you, you know how great the loss is. It turns your world upside down, your heart inside out, your stomach and your throat. This week, I will officiate at his memorial service. He asked me to do that in his will. And our family will gather in this rural Minnesota graveyard and we will look into a cold earthen grave and we will face the inescapable reality of death that awaits each one of us in this room. And here's where faith bottoms line, bottoms line, faith bottoms line, comes at the highest decibel level. It is here where we hear the words of Peter. Where do we go? Jesus, you have words of eternal life. It is here where the empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus who defeated death brings true hope. My brother Roger had this hope for he had embraced the bottom line of faith in Jesus. The path for Roger, my brother of discipleship, was rigorous and costly in his life, but there was no turning back. My brother knew that Jesus was not looking for fans. He was looking for followers. And he signed up, as all disciples do, for a long obedience in the same direction. In the journey of discipleship, Jesus will offend you. You may very well want to walk away. But where will you go? Let's pray. Father, you are so great and so good. May we hear your word. May we feel your tender touch of love. But also may we follow you and respond to your great invitation to take your yoke and learn from you. For you are humble in heart and we will find rest for our souls. In Jesus' name.